All right. Well, if you could uh, turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. It will also be projected up behind me if you'd like to follow along that way. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of those home. That is our gift to you. So this morning's message, we're going to be looking at the third message in our Advent series, Reconciled by the Christ Child. And it comes from the oh-so-Christmassy book of Hosea and is entitled Reconciliation in the Old Testament, the Prophesied Need for Reconciliation. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, it is one of the more odd books in the Bible. Um, The Bible uses this man's real-life struggle as sort of an allegory to tell a bigger picture of Israel's propensity to wander and God's faithfulness to continually pursue them in the midst of their wandering and continue to bring them back to himself. And God uses a very real and very gut-wrenching analogy. If you've been familiar with the book of Hosea and you've ever tried to put yourself in his shoes, It's just agonizing to think about. This is not an allegory. This happened in real life. Although his real life story may be allegorical for us, this really happened to a real person. He compares the people of God to an adulterous woman named Gomer who is continually turning her back on a faithful husband named Hosea. Instead of pursuing Her husband, she pursued the attention of the surrounding nations who would use her, abuse her, not love her, not treat her with the kindness and the love of the husband that she was created for. And just like the passage we looked at last week with Adam and Eve in the garden, she thought that she was pursuing something that would enrich her life and actually make her life better, even though she was clearly stepping deeper into bondage with each decision. And as she continued to chase after this love that didn't satisfy, she had this lovesick husband who stayed home for her, awaiting her, named Hosea, who was constantly called to take her back no matter what, and even more so to go and pursue after her in the midst of her adultery so that he could show her what true, everlasting, long-suffering love was truly supposed to look like. And in this beautiful picture of the Gospel, we see that though she was the one who chose to eat of the fruit, like we looked at, Last week, though she was the one who chose to eat of that which did not satisfy and only brought death, Hosea was the one who chose to love her with a deep and costly, everlasting love, going through radical lengths to pursue her, to reconcile with her, to make her an object of his love and compassion, showing her that even when she wandered, He would remain faithful to his covenant love and that he never wavered. As Paul said to Timothy that even 
we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And there's two ways to look at the book of Hosea. And the way that you look at the book of Hosea is going to say a lot about the way that you view the way that God looks at you. It's either a story about Israel's sin and the refusal to receive God's perfect gift of love, or it's a story of God's unrelenting love and how he continues to pursue and draw us in his mercy no matter what and no matter how much we continue to mess up. We're going to go with the second interpretation here this morning. This morning as we look at a little bit of a different angle of the Christmas story through the lenses of the theologically rich topic of reconciliation, we're going to take the angle of looking at it through the eyes of prophecy. For any of you who might prophecy junkies out there, historically the whole concept of Advent is really all about the idea of prophecy. As we've said each time as we're lighting the candles at the beginning of the service, the term Advent is derived from the Latin and it means coming or appearing. And the Advent tradition came about to celebrate three unique aspects about the coming or appearing of Jesus. During Advent, we look back to the Old Testament scriptures that foretold of a time when the Messiah would be born into the world. During the celebration of Advent, we look at the first coming or the first Advent of Christ and how his birth was the direct fulfillment of many prophecies spoken hundreds of years before Jesus even came in to that first Christmas morning. And during the celebration of Advent, we look at the prophecies that speak of the time when our Messiah King is returning. His second Advent, to claim his bride, the church, and to take his rightful place on the throne, a time where he will not be coming meek and lowly like he did in his first advent, but will be coming as a warrior king to right the injustices that we spoke of last week, and finally to defeat the curse once and for all, and to receive the honor and glory that is due to the King of kings and Lord of all. Today, what we're going to do is link the idea of prophecy and reconciliation and the birth of Jesus all together in kind of the spirit of potluck like we're going to be celebrating after the service. And we're going to take those three elements and put them into this theological Christmas potluck, if you will, to show how all of these truths of the Advent can be laser-focused into an Advent focus on reconciliation. We're going to be showing about how long ago the Scriptures foretold of one who would come and reconcile fallen man to himself. We're going to show how the Gospels and the Epistles make it very clear that Jesus is the promised reconciler who came into an awaiting world and he was the pre-existent one who came and walked amongst us to live amongst us as one of us in order to reconcile us to the world through the Father, that very first advent, and someday he's coming back to show us the fullness of our reconciliation 
and to forever and ever reverse the curse. So the passage that we're going to use to show that foretold need, the, net, the, the need met, and the fullness of our reconciliation this morning is Hosea 5 and 6. Please turn there if you have not already, and we're going to get started. So the first thing that I should point out as we look at these verses, we're going to be starting in verse 14, is they got themselves into this mess. Look at verse 14. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. As we've discussed this beautiful topic of reconciliation, I don't think that we've mentioned it yet, but it wouldn't be a very gospel-centered look at reconciliation if we did not at least pay homage to this. Um, a pastor named Mark Driscoll once famously said that the only thing that we brought to the gospel was the sin that made it necessary. Well, the same can be said of this topic of reconciliation. We're like Israel in this passage that I'm reading about. And the only thing that we brought to the table of reconciliation was the alienation that made it necessary for someone to come and reconcile. We offered nothing else to this equation. It's not as if there were two parties that were coming to the table in order to exchange terms of engagement and to make some kind of a deal. And as you look at this passage, it's one party that's continuing to wage war and God continually engages the rebellion with grace and with mercy and offers deep reconciliation. But just think of the different contexts that you hear about the word reconciliation spoken about. Take it out of the theological for a moment and think of the other places where you hear the terminology mentioned. We hear about it when there's two nations that are at odds, right? Usually it's part of some sort of peace treaty. One of the parties agrees to a ceasefire and the other nation agrees to stop infringing upon the other nation's territory. But whatever the conditions, it carries with it that these two parties are each conceding something in order to meet some agreed-upon place in the middle. Often we think of reconciliation in terms of marriage. That's probably the place where this term is used most often practically in my day-to-day -day life and counseling and meeting with people. And if there's a rift in the relationship, something has to be done in order to repair the rift. It's complicated by the fact that both of the parties in that marriage are both sinners. There's a famous book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. And the premise of it is when you have two sinners that come together and they start to sin against each other, why are we surprised about that, right? I bring my depravity 
The other person brings their depravity into the relationship. And often, because of pride that has permeated through the heart and through the human race, those things are going to come to loggerheads. But it's also complicated by the fact that both parties typically think that they're right. And at the root of this sin is pride. So each party thinks that they're even more correct. And I've yet to sit with a couple that wants to come in and talk about marital issues where they don't think that the other person is the one who started it. It's very, very rare that somebody is going to call up and say, we need to come in for counseling because I am a prideful wretch that continually sins against my wife and I need to come and repent before you and before her because I am always the one who starts the conflict in our relationship. No, it's always finger pointing taking place across the table. As a matter of fact, usually any counselor worth their salt, the first thing they're going to do when they sit with somebody is say, okay, let's reverse here, and how about we stop using you language? Because that's what got you into this trouble. It's you did this, and you always do this. And as many times as I've reminded you about this, you continue to do this. And guess what? If you always think that the other person was the cause of the problem, you're always going to think that it's the other person's job to reconcile. But even still, there's this meeting halfway kind of thing that takes place. Even though we're dealing with two Christians in this scenario that I'm painting. You concede your guilt. I'll begrudgingly concede my guilt. And even though we know that you're actually the one that started it, I'll be the bigger man and meet you somewhere in the middle. Though if we're honest, nobody ever really thinks that they met in the middle, do they? In our sinful nature, we like to think that we've contributed much more than we actually did to the reconciliation. It's a very common problem, and I run into it regularly when walking people through this topic of reconciliation. I always give people this illustration. I wanted to bring the board out here, but there were so many beautiful things up front that I didn't want to run over them, so I could actually draw you the illustration that I draw before couples when we run into this problem. But I always give people the same illustration when we run into these issues of reconciliation. I tell them that if they're committed to each other, they have to be committed to one another 100%. If they're committed to reconciliation, they have to be committed 100%. Because if you think about the idea of 50-50, Here's what results. You think that you gave your 50%. All right? So let's say person A is starting over here, and they think that they gave their 50%. They say, all right, I'm going to meet you in the middle. This is around 50%. And then you got person B over here, and they say, okay, I'll meet you in the middle, and I'm going to give my 50%. And theoretically, what we should have is there should be some kind of meeting in the middle, right? But because you're sinners and because you're filled with pride, you say, I'm going to give my 50%. You ready? You ready to give your 50%? 
And then that person over there says, all right, I'm going to give my 50%, but just so that I can maintain some self-righteousness in this, take a little bit of a bigger, bigger step. Do you see the chasm that exists in the middle between those two points? And that gap is where unreconciliation takes place. So I share with each couple that I counsel with, your calling is for each of you guys to give 100%. You should be over here and you should be looking at that person that you love and you should run to that person. And this person should be over here and they should run to that person. There should be no 50% in the middle because your commitment in Christ is 100% to one another. And you know that you're out of shape when you're out of breath from what you just did. (laughs) When we give ourselves 100% to the person who's giving 100%, it allows no room for lack of reconciliation, but instead it follows the pattern that we see set by Jesus Christ in the gospel, the ultimate healing for our reconciliation. But we see here in these verses in Hosea that they were the ones that got themselves into the mess. Again, look at verses 14 and 15. It'll be like a, a lion to Ephraim, a young lion to Judah. I'm going to tear away and carry off, and no one shall rescue. I'm going to return to my place. Well, they acknowledge their guilt. They're not even seeing it. They don't even realize that they're digging the hole any deeper. And until they seek my face, they don't even realize that they're choosing distress. But until in their distress, they earnestly seek me. So they dug this hole that they are stuck in. And there is no greater enemy to biblical, gospel-centered reconciliation than the idea of you dug the hole so you figure out how to dig yourself out of it. Look, if we could figure out how to dig ourselves out of the hole, we wouldn't need reconciliation and we wouldn't need a Savior. The reason behind Christmas is because you can't dig yourself out of the hole. We were, if we were capable of digging ourselves out of this, God wouldn't have needed to send his son to this earth. Jesus didn't come as this sort of spiritual leader that could stand at the edge of the hole and say, come on, you can do it. Work a little harder. Stop making these mistakes. Here, I'll even help you out a little bit. I'll backfill a little bit of this dirt into the... That's not the way that Jesus operates. He's not some spiritual leader that came to coach you out of the hole. His blood filled that hole because you weren't capable of pulling yourself out of it. He came down. He came down into the hole with you. He didn't stand above the hole like some two-bit life coach. And as a tangent, where did life coaches ever get their credentials anyway? I'm stunned at the amount of life coaches that I meet this, <laughs> these days. I'm just like, whoever told you that you were qualified to coach a life? You need Jesus. But 
He didn't try to coach you. He came down into the hole. If you remember back the vision with Jacob when he has this ladder that goes in between the heavens and the earth and there were angels ascending and descending. The ladder is Jesus. And Jesus, that great ladder, came down into the hole so that you, through reconciliation, might be able to get out of the hole that you yourself were the one who dug. But for a time, God allowed them to keep digging the hole deeper. It's actually one of the (coughs) big themes of the book of Hosea. He wanted them to see that apart (coughs) from his reconciling grace, they would have never chosen him. There are people out there that believe that given enough time, given the right situations, (coughs) that they would make a choice for God. The book of Hosea reminds us that this just is not true. Hosea is perfectly loving as a husband. Patient, gracious, forgiving. Yet Gomer continued to choose that which did not satisfy and only brought pain instead. What a picture of the gospel that runs straight through the book of Hosea. And yet they continue to dig into that which does not satisfy. And in the midst of that folly, God offers them the gift of reconciliation. Look at verse 15 into 6.1. It says, I'm going to go to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he might heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. He said that we would be in that place, that he would remain in that place where he could be found when they came to an end of their folly, which is just miraculously gracious when you think about it. That's what he means when he says that he's going to go to his place until they seek his face. And again, he repeats that he'll be found by them after they seek after him. This is what God was saying in one of the most beloved scriptures in the entire Bible in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, when he says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your good and not for your calamity, plans to give you a future and a hope. And then he skips down and says, and then there will come a day that you will seek after me and you will find me when you seek after me with all of your heart. He wants to be found by you. You know when human beings offend one another, someone will often give the silent treatment in order to passive aggressively let it be known that there's an offense. I'm sure you've seen it done before, right? Maybe one or two of you have even done it. Grace means that no matter what, he's not turning a cold shoulder to you. That's what 5.14-6.3 through is all about. He's saying, look, I, I am Hosea in this incident. You are Gomer. You continually to be this adulterous wife as I sit there faithful And I'm still not going to turn a cold shoulder to you. He wants to reconcile. Look, no matter what you've done, any of you who are here, no matter what you've done, God wants to reconcile with you. 
God doesn't look at you and say, you dug that hole too deep. I can't pull you out of this. And he doesn't want to give you the cold shoulder. Sometimes people use that language that they've found God. I rarely correct them because I know that they mean it pretty harmlessly. But it is important to point out that passages like this make it clear that God doesn't need to be found because no matter what you've done, God never went anywhere. He longs to be reconciled to his people. In fact, the very Christmas message proves that God in eternity past concocted a secret rescue plan in order to reconcile fallen man to himself. We see in parables like the prodigal son where the father ran to his estranged son in order to reconcile him back into his family. And he's right there to be found if we come to an end of our folly. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, and after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we might live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, meaning he'll refresh us, and as the spring rains that water the earth. The beauty is, God never went anywhere. Sometimes when somebody has been out of fellowship, sometimes when somebody walks away from the faith, or they just step out of being in fellowship with the body, I'll run into them and they'll say something like, I really miss you. This might sound snarky, and I promise I don't mean it that way. But usually I'll respond by saying, I haven't gone anywhere. I can still be found in the same old places where you always found me. God hasn't gone anywhere. He's still enthroned upon Zion, like he says right here. He's just waiting for you to stop looking elsewhere. And as with any gift, the reason that we use gift language is all one has to do in order to get this gift is to receive it. The only thing that you see the people do in this passage is come let us return. The only thing that they're doing is turning towards him. That's the only verb you really see taking place on their part. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. On Christmas, we see that Jesus was the one that came and initiated. It was all Jesus. All these people are doing is turning and gazing upon him. And then look at the rest of the passage. The Lord just showers blessing upon them. He pours out blessing upon blessing because he wants to be reconciled with his children. He wants to bless those who have been reconciled through Christ. Deep down inside, every one of you has a part that wants to be reconciled. If you've ever read the story, What's So Amazing About Grace by Phil Yancey, there's this beautiful story in it called 200 Pedros. And it was this father who was alienated from his son. So he puts out an ad in the newspaper saying, Pedro... All is forgiven. Meet me at the square tomorrow at noon. And the next day at 
noon, 200 Pedros show up, all longing to be reconciled to their father. That's your lovesick father. He sent the son because he longs for those 200 Pedros to be reconciled to the father. God wanted all of them to desire the gift giver rather than the gift itself. And this is what I'll bring you home with before I give you a couple of application points. Notice, as you look at verses 2 and 3, all of these blessings that he offers to them to revive them, to raise them up, to give them life. He wants to shower them with blessing. He wants the certainty of that shower to be just as the spring rains that water the earth, as he says in verse 3. Notice that he offers them all of these blessings, but nowhere does it tell them to seek after the blessings. They're called to seek after the blesser. And as they seek after the blesser, the blesser will do what he does, and he will bless. Sometimes I hear messages this time of year. They're very popular. I'm sure you hear them. They like the rail against Christmas presents this time of year. They're very popular in youth ministry. I was a youth pastor for five years. You kids, you don't love Jesus. All you love is presents. First of all, just bah humbug to you. Like, <laughs> just want to smack a youth pastor that gives that message. I just want to smack a youth pastor in general, but especially one that preaches that message. There's nothing wrong with blessings. There's nothing wrong with gifts. There's nothing wrong with receiving good things from the Lord. But seek after the blesser. And not only will you get the gifts, but you will receive the blesser as a result. God is not against giving good things to his children. Look, if you seek after the gift, you'll get the gift. You seek after the giver, you get the giver. And you get the gift that pours out from Emmanuel's side. And in keeping with the, Christian, the, the Christmas message, this offer of coming to them as the spring rain and water them means that he has greater things even still. That they've just begun to taste the pinnacle. And more blessing is showering down. So, as I give you guys a couple of applications, and these come right out of the passage, and each one builds upon each other. Since we've been reconciled, it says that we've been revived. So let us remember that we are revived from the dead. We're not on hospice, folks. We're not sickly. We've been revived and been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1.4. Since we have been reconciled and revived, it says we're alive. So let us live as those who are truly alive. Do you feel alive today? I mean, just in the service alone, seeing all those precious children and singing these beautiful songs and being around the people of God and then hearing about the grace of God and the gospel that no matter how much you dug the hole, 
that his love is that he came to pull you out of it because he is in love with you. Does that make you feel alive today? Since we've been reconciled and revived and we now live, the conclusion that they give is, let us press on. Let us press on to know the Lord. Brothers and sisters, my challenge to you this Christmas season, you who are alive, you who are revived, you who are reconciled, let us press on. Let us press on to know the Lord. And since we've been reconciled, revived, brought to life, and we've been given the ability to press on to know him, let us receive from him who is the author of all that is good. And that's what we are about to do with communion. We are about to partake and receive and taste and see that he is good. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the giver of all good things, that you are a fountain full of grace and mercy. God, thank you that when we seek you, the giver, Lord, that the gifts are bountiful, but I thank you that we get the giver and we get to be with the blesser. Lord, that we get Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Eric said we we're about to partake in what represents that ultimate blessing. <clears throat> As I was thinking about our communion um, over the last day or so, it occurred to me that this time of year is not a wonderful, uh, joy-filled time for everyone. That there are those who come to December with a, an anxiety, even a dread. That may not be true of anyone here. I would doubt that, as, as many people as are here. And as I was thinking about that, I, I was caused to think about that by reading in Luke about Mary and the message that Gabriel brought to her. This is somewhat the use of a sanctified imagination on my part, but think about her. Here she is with an unplanned, unexpected pregnancy, a socially unacceptable pregnancy that could have cost her her marriage, her planned marriage, certainly her reputation, we know that years later, people were talking about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. So maybe Mary was one of those who went through Advent with a certain level of anxiety. If that's the case, maybe she went to a psalm that I took you to a couple of weeks ago, and I want to return to, and it's Psalm 130. And as a good young Jewish girl, she sang this psalm as she was going to Jerusalem every year for the appointed feasts. But hear it through Mary's ears. Or if you're struggling with your emotions even this morning, hear it as God's 
encouragement, God's holding out of hope to you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, O Redeemer, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As men come and distribute the communion elements, I would commend to you those words that with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He doesn't promise to elevate your emotional level artificially, but he does promise an eternal truth that the gospel is your hope and it's your only hope. So as we remember the Lord together in this, we're going to have four stations up here as we do each week. I'll invite you to come and get the communion elements. You can partake right then and there. You can take them back to your seat. If you are challenged as far as getting up here, raise your hand and somebody will bring the elements to you. If you'd like to pray with somebody, find there will be people here that you can pray with or find somebody that you know perhaps. But this is for God's people. This is for those who belong to Jesus. If you don't, or you're not sure, maybe refrain, maybe find somebody to talk to, maybe be like the man in this congregation who last week gave his life to Christ after the service. Today can be a day of salvation. Let me pray. Father in heaven, for sure, Advent is a time of joy and wonder. And it is so, not because of all the outer trappings, as wonderful as they may be, but it is so because God the Son left his throne in heaven, came to earth to be born and to be laid in a manger and adored by ordinary people just like us. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that the gospel is true and that you desire to bless your people. So as we remember you in this way, we do, as your word says, proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until then, it is our 
wonderful privilege to share together in this bread and this cup. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come, remember the Lord. Expected Jesus born to set thy people free from our sins and fears. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Joy to those who long to see the day spring from on high appear. Come, thou promised rod of Jesse, of thy birth we long to hear. O'er the hills the angels singing news, glad tidings of a birth. Go to him, your praises bringing. Christ the Lord has come to earth. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our Redeemer, Shepherd, Friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. This the everlasting wonder, Christ was born, the Lord of all. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Thy, thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. You guys can stand with us.
This last song is a uh, famous hymn, Jesus Paid It All. It's also a fitting song for Christmas, as we know all that took place was pointing towards the cross. Let's be reminded of the gospel as we close our time in worship today. I hear the Savior say, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch him pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone. And change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before, and when before the throne, I stand in him complete, I lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. Raise your voices. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sing together. Praise the one who paid my debt. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life oh, from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life oh, from oh, praise him. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life oh, from the dead. Jesus paid it all. 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Amen. First Thessalonians 3, it says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as we um, get ready for the, uh, for the, for the uh, lunch afterwards, we need some help setting up some tables and stacking up chairs. So if you guys are able, let's uh, turn this room into a uh, lunch room. <laughs>